at one point I spoke to one of the clinicians and I said, but I need a waiting room. That's where the quote comes. Is I need a waiting room. Where else are I going to get my patients from? And I said to her, I said, you know, Toyota Motor Company doesn't warehouse its automotive parts before they put it on the assembly line. They manage just-in-time manufacturing where the parts arrive just as they're needed. If I guaranteed that a patient was available as soon as you were available, do you care that they came from a cold, dark room with Jerry Springer on the wall and, you know, dog-eared highlights magazines on the coffee tables? And her response was, well, no, I guess not. I said, well, then leave the waiting room issue to me. I'll guarantee that you remain as efficient and productive as you, as you need to, but you don't have to ruin the patient experience in the meantime. And so I asked the dean, I said, look, I don't need you to solve the no waiting room issue. I'll figure it out uh, with all the brilliant people we have here. Um, you just have to declare from the mouth there will be no waiting rooms. And he sort of looked at me reluctantly and said, okay, all right, well, if that's the case. So he, he, told the, he told the clinical team, there will be no waiting room. You know, and everyone grumbled, and I went to a meeting the next day, and someone was like, can you believe the dean said there would be no waiting rooms? Uh, and my response was, oh, that's too bad. Well, let's figure out how to do it. <laughs> That was Stacy Chang. He's the executive director of the Design Institute for Health at Dell Medical School. He joins us today to talk about design in medicine and how we can use design thinking as a tool to improve healthcare. I'm David Rosenthal, primary care physician at the Yale School of Medicine. And I'm Audrey Provenzano, host of Review Systems from the Harvard Center of Primary Care. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today and talking with us about design. Maybe we can start with, for our listeners who may not have heard of it before, what exactly is design thinking and why do you think it's valuable to medicine and healthcare? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So first, thanks for having me. And um, it's a good question to begin with because, you know, 25 years into this career of mine, my parents are still asking me the same question, which is what exactly is design thinking? So um, uh, maybe I've done an insufficient job of explaining to them, but I'll try uh, for a better version today. I think the modern definition of design thinking really focuses around this idea of a creative approach to problem solving that really starts by understanding the human needs at the core of the system and then takes a very iterative uh, approach to building new solutions, not just you know revising existing models, uh, and then takes that through a continuous learning model. Um, I think it's particularly viable to healthcare, one, because healthcare is generally reluctant change, um, oftentimes for good reasons, and usually focused on revision of, of existing models and, and sometimes suffers from deploying things that are too big to, to fail. And the incremental approach of, of building evidence for what good looks like and eventually scaling that to a complete solution um, helps to address some of the reticence of, of health and healthcare to, to try something new. Hmm. So you, you wrote an article that you published on New England Journal Catalyst about design thinking. And there was a quote from it that I really loved. It said, the dysfunction of our modern healthcare system isn't about failure of intention, but rather pursuit of siloed and sometimes conflicting priorities. The needs of clinicians haven't always aligned with the needs of patients, and both are subject to the demands of payers and regulators and the financial limitations and business strategy of the provider organization. So everyone who works in medicine, you know, at any level or who listens to the show feels those tensions every day. And we're all trying different kinds of things to fix this, you know, payment models, bundled payments, all these different things. But um, how can design thinking help us mitigate those conflicts? Yeah, it's, it is the grand question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the work I did before uh, founding the Design Institute was with an organization called IDEO. And, 
it was remarkable the the spread and diversity of the work that we did. But I'll tell you, in some ways, it was ultimately frustrating because we weren't actually working at the core of the dysfunction, right? We mm-hmm. weren't actually solving the things that perpetuated all the need for band-aid, band-aid solutions and, and the like. And so the opportunity we have now is to strike at the core of the dysfunction. And it actually begins with recognizing really what is the core of our healthcare system. Like if you return to first principles, the goal is to match people who need care with people who are capable of caring, right? And if, if we sort of hand on heart, go back to that original motivation, then we can actually begin to design the system from those first principles again. Hmm. Uh, so from a design standpoint, we, we try valiantly in every scenario we're faced with to actually record to, the, to return to those first core human principles and say, what are the nuances, what are the context and the circumstances of care, who are the, the subjects and the, and the purveyors of care, and, and how do they want it to interact? And then how do we design a system that creates the best possible outcome from that? Now, that, that might seem a little Pollyannish because it can't be naive to the fact that you know, healthcare is a big business, certainly here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to understand then how does that align with financial priorities and the business priorities of organizations that are, that are already embedded um, in, in our modern healthcare system. But starting from the first human principles allows us to find the motivations that actually create the least friction. If you try solving for the business models first or the technology deployments and all that stuff, ultimately you arrive at a point where if it's not aligned with the human motivations, people just choose not to engage. They choose not to perpetuate uh, those models because it sort of runs counter to uh, why they're engaging with the healthcare system. Hmm. And I think one of the challenges is that we have to recognize that there's a lot of money involved in the system and a lot of business models that are well entrenched and that we actually have to work to evolve them. There is no clean slate. We can't start by eviscerating the entire existing healthcare system, you know, and then disrupting and then hoping that we can build something from scratch. We have to we have to build a model of transition and, and design helps us re-anchor on the things that actually matter most and then actually using those original core motivations to actually drive change in the system. That's what we've discovered has been the real true value of design as embedded uh, in a system that's trying to rebuild from sort of of its core principles. Hmm. I love that. (laughs) Um, I mean, and I think, you know, you're describing something that I think a lot of us who work in these large health systems um, that we're going to have about sort of the article in the clinic that you guys um, built down in in Texas, um, in some ways you had the benefit of being able to start afresh. Mm -hmm. But I think for places where um, both Audrey and I trained and obviously where we practiced, um, it's like a, it was never really designed, these systems. It's just an amalgam of, on, built on top of an amalgam, built on top of an amalgam. And so there's a lot of uh, entrenched challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And uh, I've had colleagues, uh, even here at Dell Medical School, who, who have said the same thing. It's like, you know, the system wasn't designed, or I, I would say intentionally designed. It arose out of circumstances. And I think, um, you know, our, our viewpoint of that now might be a little skewed because, you know, the systems were originally designed with intent. Um, the problem is the context has changed a lot. I, you know, I'm a student of history. I was studying the rise of the modern health system, uh, you know, and it was first characterized, you know, in the early 1900s in post-World War One Britain where they're trying to figure out how to solve for the healthcare needs of, you know, large swaths of the population. And they began to describe, there's a paper that actually describes from the Ministry of Health, you know, the model of a primary care, secondary care, a large, you know, regional teaching, academic medical center, anchoring, you know, um, 
uh, a region. And so those are models that we've perpetuated now for more than 100 years. And, you know, at the time, they were appropriate for addressing the models and the nature of disease that existed then, right, which were mostly acute trauma and, you know, mass infection. Uh, but those are not the things that, that um, cause us to be ill now or, or kill us now. Mm. And so while the, the need and the modern nature of disease has changed, the nature of our health system has not. And so it, it feels ill-designed now for the, the, face, the things that we face in society. But it wasn't ill-designed for what it was originally designed for. It was just we haven't kept, kept pace with the change. Or we've continued to, you know, create amalgams of Band-Aids that, you know, eventually are unrecognizable as a coherent system. Mm. Hmm. It reminds me in some ways of thinking of that, that it was designed for the sort of the, the industrialists around the turn of the century and the, as you, as you describe in the, in the paper, uh, sort of very much around sort of a, a assembly line kind of thinking around the, the, the patients. And so, so maybe that's how we can sort of dive into the next question, which is about sort of the article that's in the New England Journal catalog. And you published this wonderful article, um, which was actually trying to imagine and build clinics without waiting rooms. And sort of you described that experience, both the before, during and after. And you have this wonderful quote from a physician who said, but I need a waiting room. Where else will I get my patients from? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the design journey on that path? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to share a little bit of context first, and I'll definitely get to that quote because it was uh, definitely um, a moment <laughs> in that journey uh, that gave me pause and actually forced me to think about what, what it was we were really trying to do. So uh, there's a lot of unique circumstances in Austin, uh, in, in, in the central Texas region now, that give us a lot of permission to try new things, not the least of which is a local healthcare district, which pays for the care for the underserved here in this region and is uniquely dedicated to moving beyond the traditional fee-for-service reimbursement system. So they're, they're very committed to building a value-based healthcare system because much of the revenue, all of the revenue that they gather to pay for the care for the underserved is, is gathered from property taxes from the community. So they're trying to serve the needs of the community as a commitment to, to how they spend the money. Some of the local tax dollars uh, help support the medical school. We also just about a fee-for-service model. And so, when, when we arose here, and, and it is a unique circumstance to build a medical school, to you know, tier one academic research university, you know, from scratch. It's not something um, that happens very often. In fact, I think we're the first one in 50 years uh, at a school as large as UT Austin. It allows us to question a lot of assumptions, and especially with uh, commitment to value-based care, we thought that the model um, could be different, and that we could design it um, with intention. And so. When we arrived, when the dean arrived and, and soon thereafter I arrived, um, we had inherited these buildings that had already been constructed. They were shelled out. The interiors had not been built yet. And some of the planners for the medical school had assumed that this would be a medical school in the same vein as every other medical school, right, where you build a large clinical facility and that the clinical care, uh, through its you know, thin margin, manages to fund uh, the research and education missions, which generally don't make money. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of academic medical centers, that, that clinical enterprise is the economic driver of the system. And so they have to uh, accommodate, you know, uh, high throughput to generate sort of the revenue encounters necessary to, to fund the entire system. Uh, since, since we're built with a different intention, you know, we get paid for our outcomes, not necessarily for our throughput. Uh, the dean said, hey, you know, here's an opportunity for us to try to lean into the, to the intention and build something very different. Uh, would you be interested in helping, you know, the architects who are, you know, constructing the interior or designing the interior think about how we might do this differently? And we said, sure, we would. 
And I, I told the dean, I said, but, you know, um, with only one request, which is if you want us to help on this, I'm going to ask that you eliminate all the waiting rooms. <laughs> and he said, why? <laughs> he looked at me and said, I, I've actually never seen a clinic without waiting rooms before, uh, which is a classic response you hear all the time in healthcare. And, I, and my response was, well, just because you haven't seen it before doesn't mean it can't work. I've been trying to convince, you know, in my previous life as a consultant, you know, any a dozen uh, healthcare systems to try to eliminate their waiting rooms. At one point, I spoke to one of the clinicians and I said, but I need a waiting room. That's where the quote comes. Is I need a waiting room. Where else are I going to get my patients from? And I said to her, I said, you know, Toyota Motor Company doesn't warehouse its automotive parts before they put it on the assembly line. They manage just-in-time manufacturing where the parts arrive just as they're needed. If I guarantee that a patient was available as soon as you were available, do you care that they came from a cold, dark room with Jerry Springer on the wall and, you know, dog-eared highlights magazines on the coffee tables? And her response was, well, no, I guess not. I said, well, then leave the waiting room issue to me. I'll guarantee that you remain as efficient and productive as you, as you need to, but you don't have to ruin the patient experience in the meantime. And so I asked the dean, I said, look, I don't need you to solve the no waiting room issue. I'll figure it out uh, with all the brilliant people we have here. Um, you just have to declare from the mount there will be no waiting rooms. And he sort of looked at me reluctantly and said, okay, all right, well, if that's the case. So he, he, told, the, he told the clinical team, there will be no waiting rooms. You know, and everyone grumbled, and I went to a meeting the next day, and someone was like, can you believe the dean said there would be no waiting rooms? Uh, and my response was, oh, that's too bad. Well, let's figure out how to do it. <laughs> that's um, fantastic. Um, why was that your priority? I'm just curious. Yeah, th- that's exactly the right question. Why would elimination of waiting rooms be the, the anchor that we would tie our future to in these clinics? I mean, on the one hand, it's obvious you can, you can improve, uh, by some measure, the experience of the patient by removing that point of frustration. It's not a point. The duration of frustration, you know, being asked to come and to hurry up and wait, and then really prioritizing the system's needs, which is I need a patient whenever I'm available to serve them instead of serving the patient's needs, which is really about what it means to have a properly uh, designed service experience. So, so that, that's obvious. You, you, can, you can make some measurable improvement on the patient experience. But I'll tell you, the waiting room elimination was really a bit of a Trojan horse. The reason we propose that is as soon as you remove that gating mechanism, right, you have a pen full of patients that you extract when you need one in the system, the one where you have to get the patient to match up with the system scheduling almost one-to-one, there's a whole cascade of changes that you then have to come to terms with on the system and its operation and its, and its design and the service model and all of that. And eliminating the waiting room allowed us to essentially catalyze a whole set of other changes, everything from design of the, of the exam rooms and the, and the back of house to the team-based model of care to the kinds of technology and the kinds of essentially protocols that we would deploy in the space. So by agreeing to that, it allowed us to put pressure on all of the other legacy assumptions we had about how a traditional clinic operates. And uh, we find that's a really durable model for how to make change, right? You, you choose one thing which no one can deny is a benefit. Eliminating waiting rooms, no one can say, oh, no, it'd be better if we had waiting rooms. Like, no one hand on heart could say that. But the kind of change then it evinces uh, was the, really the thrust of what we were trying to do, was to remake the model in whole cloth. And that gave us um, both the permission and the provocation to make those bigger changes. That's so interesting. You you write about how not even the architects initially were on board. They they were puzzled. They were like, what, what, what do you mean you don't want waiting rooms? Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating, right? The number of parties that told us waiting rooms had to be in the building 
was mind-blowing, actually, and we heard it from all sides. Uh, the architects were the first ones, <laughs> actually. And if you if, to understand why the architects said that, you have to understand their motivations or actually the incentives that drive what they do. Architects are on the hook for producing spaces that facilitate efficient and effective transactions, especially in a medical enterprise. And the reluctance to part the waiting room model is really explained by the fact that they haven't seen other models work before. It's, it's actually the same question. I've never seen that work before. <laughs> and our response is, well, just because you haven't seen it work uh, um, doesn't mean it can't exist. And so the interaction in the room was funny because they said, you know, we said, uh, actually, you know, the dean just announced we're not going to have waiting rooms. And they're like, oh, well, that's a really fantastical notion. But, you know, the last 11 clinics we've built all have had waiting rooms. We know exactly what best practices are. And I said, yeah, those are best practices for a model of your, but if we're trying to build something new that's remarkably different, that operates differently, has different team organization and flows differently, how do we know that waiting rooms are necessary in that new model? And, and you know, they even at one point offered to do uh, simulations to show us. And I said, do you know how the flow will, will work in this model that's never been deployed? They're like, no. I was like, well, then you don't have data to prove that it won't work or it will work either way. Yeah, at which point they sort of threw up their hands in frustration. They're like, well, then what do we do? I said, well, then we discover we, we, we discover whether or not this works by actually building prototypes and seeing what we discover along the way when we operate them first at, at initial trials and then closer to full scale and then full mock simulations. So so what we did was um, initially built mock-ups of clinics, you know, really raw out of foam core and cardboard, uh, just to see what the flow would look like. You know, if we moved the patient into a room directly when they arrived and they met with the physician, what kind of backups and clogs and, and pressure would we create on the system in other places? And every time we created one, we solved for the next problem until eventually um, we broke the logjam. And each of those models got more and more sophisticated. Um, you know, in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst article, there's a, there's a big panoramic picture of our first installation of one of those models. It was in an art gallery over at the College of Fine Arts. Um, we just needed a big empty space where we threw up a bunch of rooms and, and tried to figure out what the flow would look like. And we failed just as often as we succeeded. But every time we failed, we went back and said, okay, what's the core, the root cause of, of that clog or of that back, uh, backup? Let's see if we can solve for that. And you just work systematically through it. Um, and it's a perfect expression of sort of the iterative nature of design. You know, none of those prototypes were expensive to make. You know, they took us at most a few days to stand up. Uh, and what we learned from them helped reveal the next problem, and then we spent another couple of days and see if we could solve that. Sometimes we succeeded, sometimes we didn't, and then if we didn't, we'd try again, or we found an alternative pathway. So for the architects, it was actually a demonstration in small steps, right? We solved for the first few problems that they raised in contention, and then eventually they began to see that it was possible. And the most interesting part was for the architects, it reignited the reason they entered their field. They, they entered their field to do groundbreaking work in new spaces that facilitated uh, new kinds of behaviors. And this was the kind of project, oddly, that they had actually originally joined the discipline to do. The problem is they'd been beaten in submission by all of their clients who told them, you know, don't take too many risks. It's got to be just as efficient as the competitor down the street. And that encourages architects essentially to copycat and make incremental changes instead of taking bold leaps into the future. And so design gave them, you know, at least enough proof uh, along the way that they could sort of put one foot in front of the other until they got to a point where the model, as best we could tell, would work. I love it. You know, it's funny, as you're talking, it's making me think about all of the other sort of industries where there are no more waiting rooms, like the hockey pucks in restaurants and using text mm -hmm. messages in, in airlines 
And, you know, you realize that just in time, you know, technology has enabled a very different kind of experience in the service sectors. And, and we're just now, you're describing one of probably the first one within a health, large healthcare setting that's sort of in, uh, using these. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and, and there's two important points there. You know, one is that healthcare tends to lag other service industries. Uh, and in, in, in our case, we just borrowed some of the things. We have restaurant pagers at check-in. If you show up an hour early, we can guarantee your room's going to be available, right? And little old ladies are still trained from a lifetime of going to medical clinics to show up an hour early lest they miss their appointment. And we can't untrain them, at least not initially. And so they'll still show up an hour before, and we still have needs to be efficient, so we can't keep rooms open for an entire hour at a time. And so the truth of the matter is that there's still unallocated time, right? The difference in posture is that we don't force them into a specified room and tell them not to leave, otherwise they'll miss their appointment. We give them freedom. We give them a restaurant pager or if they have a cell phone and they'll also type them, we will. And we give them options. You know, you can you, you can find a space to dwell. There's free Wi-Fi. You can be productive. There's plugins. There's a cafe down on the first floor. There's a learning lounge on the second floor where if you want to learn more about your condition or the decisions that you're going to have to make, we can prep you for that. You can make it productive time, but you have control over that, which is in contrast to the traditional waiting model where we tell you, you know, you don't you have to be here and we have dominion over you until we're ready for you. And it's that shift in posture, which is really the, the big change. It's not that we've eliminated unallocated time because you can't perfectly control for that. And then the other thing I'd say is, you know, we're not the first ones to have eliminated waiting rooms. Actually, if you go to really effective practices, you'll see places that, that essentially have empty waiting rooms. They don't, you know, really effective practices don't have waiting rooms that get utilized. They're there, but they're not utilized. And then other models that don't require perfect efficiency, you know, concierge medicine and things like that, where they can have downtime or they can have gaps in their schedule or an empty room, don't have waiting rooms either. So it's not the first time the no waiting room model has been pulled off, but it is the first time I think that we're aware of that it's been pulled off in a traditional sort of specialty outpatient ambulatory sort of setting. You talk about it in the New England Journal Catalyst article, you reference the integrated practice unit, which I believe is from the HBS's or Harvard Business School my, professor Michael Porter's book on value-based healthcare, And you use that as a reference point for designing care around the patient. And in some ways, you've adapted it to almost like an integrated patient unit. Mm-hmm. You've really empowered patients and, and their care needs instead of the healthcare providers and sort of the system's needs. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the inspiration for using the IPU and, and value-based healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So so you're right. Uh, Michael Porter and Elizabeth Heisberg were the original purveyors of the notion of the IPU. And Elizabeth Heisberg actually is a professor here at the medical school. So we have the, the benefit of her perspective and knowledge as well as we were doing this work. In, you know, in the book, uh, they describe the IPU, and, and there are examples of that um, being deployed, you know, in small measure in, in other places. This was the first institution dedicated to deploying it across every one of its clinical specialties, and where I think we're at like 15 specialties at this point. One of the unique builds was, you know, integrated practice units, the short version of it is that it, it aggregates responsibility and payment around outcomes uh, of the entire team. So individual team members are no longer measured individually. They're measured as a group on both their outcomes uh, and, and the quality of their work and paid as a team as well. The additional nuance that we injected into the mix is a focus on patient-centered care. And I know that gets a lot of lip service uh, in, in healthcare literature right now, but literally the launch of patient-defined uh, goals and patient-reported outcomes as a measure of success the measure on which the teams would get paid. So patients can often, in many cases, define the goals by which success of the team, the care delivery team, will be measured. 
and we get paid that way. So that means the, the patient is very much part of the team. It's not no longer the health system operating on the patient. It is the, the patient in collaboration with the integrated practice unit of the care team working together towards common goals. So engaging the patient, uh, giving them uh, agency in their care, involving them, asking them to have some accountability for that as well, all becomes part of the model. And so if you're going to build something that uh, anchors so heavily on patient engagement, then you actually have to include them as part of the, of the mix in the model. Traditionally integrated practice units, as initially described, still had a, a little bit of a, a system acting on the patient perspective. Uh, here, we, we augmented it significantly by saying that actually the patient is actually the purveyor of what good looks like. They get to define that. So that, that shifted uh, the model significantly and they made it incumbent upon us to actually pay a lot of attention to the role the patient has and the state of mind that they're in when they're uh, receiving care. And, and frankly, some of the literacy that informs their ability to judge whether or not they're making progress on their own defined goals. Hmm. Did you guys do this just for ambulatory specialties or did you implement it in a primary care clinic as well? And can you talk a little bit about if there were differences that were surprising to you between some of the different specialties that you worked with and how you had to how you had to design the clinics? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that last question first and then talk about um, the extension of primary care. So I arrived pretty early in the medical school. I think I was employee number 20, I think it was, and only two of the clinical chairs predated me. And the two clinical chairs were uh, the head of uh, traditionally what's called orthopedic surgery, and the other one was the head of traditionally what's called OB-GYN. We call them something else, uh, women's health and uh, surgery and perioperative care. But traditionally, and our, our clinical leads are anything but traditional, but traditionally you, you probably couldn't have picked two disciplines that were less likely to see eye to eye, right? And, you know, if you had asked them, they probably said, you know, 90% of what we do is different, you know, because it's unique to our specialty, uh, 10% of them might be common, and that's not worth even really discussing. And by the time we got through defining the new model of care, we found out that, you know, the vast majority, like 90% of it was the same. And we only had to accommodate about 10% in variation. The room layouts are almost identical between every clinical specialty. In some cases, we move the bed adjacent to the wall as opposed to in the middle of the room because people need the wall for support getting onto the table. We found actually very little variation. They all have team huddles in the morning. They all discuss patients, the way the back of house is laid out, and the way they interact with patients with multi-provider teams, all actually very, very similar. So we launched with a couple clinics. They were mostly procedure-based clinics. Um, uh, over time, we've launched psychiatry and cognitive disorder and other things that are actually more consultative in nature. Uh, and the rooms which are designed with some sterility in mind and clean it and clean up and all that stuff weren't as warm as were probably necessary for those consultative specialties. And so we've um, redesigned some of those rooms actually to accommodate a better experience for both the provider and for the patient. So those are some of the shifts that we've made. We have a common experience blueprint which anchors the design of the service model for all the clinics and it's remarkably similar for all the specialties. The first question you asked around primary care is a really good one. IPUs in primary care are largely not yet deployed because the longitudinality of the care means it's hard to get to measured outcomes you know, in an episode of care. Like Some of these folks will live uh, the duration of their lives with the chronic disease. You, can, you can't get to perfectly measurable outcomes, you know, resolution, I should say. You can't get to perfect resolution in the way you might with like, a hip joint replacement. Uh, and even more challenging is that in the primary care setting, 
we're not talking about just strictly biomedical maladies. We're talking about things that have a lot of other drivers. There's a lot of conversation now around social determinants of health and how race and environment and gender and economic empowerment and um, all that drives so much of the health outcomes that, that are really the focus of attention in primary care. And so there's very much a need naturally to expand the purview beyond just medical care and trying to address the needs of the population. And we're in the midst of actually designing uh, a couple primary care interventions in and amongst community settings right now. We're still keen to eliminate the waiting room, but just as is the case in especially care, the waiting room is just the beginning. It's just the provocation to say, hey, look, if we're going to respect people's time and, and deliver care in ways that best match their needs, you know, yes, we should eliminate waiting, and there's lots of sort of technological and other ways to sort of uh, accommodate that. But really, isn't that a provocation to think about what is the, the greater holistic model necessary to address the broader needs beyond just the medical um, needs that bring them in the front door? And so we're doing a number of projects right now, uh, two in urban arenas and one in a rural arena, trying to figure out just exactly how you serve up that model of care um, that has everything from food assistance programs to uh, you know Head Start programs for kids to social services and mental and behavioral health interventions along with the need to develop social and community belonging in those communities and neighborhoods as a mechanism for addressing health needs. So it expands the purview dramatically as soon as you move out of a, a specialty clinic, uh, ambulatory specialty clinic. Uh, and those are the challenges that are really fascinating and, and actually in many cases much harder. Longitudinality complicates things. Yes, it does. Not so nicely packaged and neat. No, exactly. And, and as Audrey knows, I work to run a homelessness clinic, a clinic for veterans experiencing homelessness here in Connecticut. And that was going to be sort of the next question is that it's never neat. <laughs> Everything you potentially can design will likely break in, in certain ways, right, with, with certain populations. As you're designing these clinics, you know, we always in healthcare try to speak to, we always think of the exceptions, right, that are going to sort of break the system a little bit or not work. So how did you think about some of those exceptions? People in, in wheelchairs or in gurneys, patients experiencing homelessness as they navigate these clinic spaces? It's a really great question. And so um, just you couldn't have known this, but my wife actually, she was the medical director for a respite clinic in Northern California before we moved to Austin. And she's, um, she leads up a lot of the homeless services for one of the FQHCs here in Austin. So I'm quite familiar with the challenges that people experience homelessness face, inconsistent housing, uh, inability to store or even deliver their own medication, all sorts of challenges, which um, for them is not an exception. That is the norm. We talk about them sometimes as subjects in the extreme, right? They have sort of extreme circumstances which make self-agency in healthcare a really difficult thing, right? You know, we take for granted that we have refrigerators where we can store insulin, you know, someone who lives on the street doesn't. But what I'd say is, is this is, it really comes to a topic that we spend a lot of time at the Design Institute now thinking about, which is design of systems. And the problem with systems is that they are by nature indeterminate. You can't perfectly describe a system deploy it and expect it to work exactly the way you described it. Because especially in healthcare, there's too many human elements and too many intersections and collisions that happen between entities for you to be able to predict all of it. It's just not possible, right? And so you have to build systems that are adaptable or at least malleable. And part of our view of 
systems design is this, which is that there are some universal needs, right? People come seeking care. There needs to be a diagnosis. There needs to be a prescribed therapy, and then you have to execute on that. And, and so there's some commonalities, you know, how people understand the diagnosis. Do they believe what the physician is saying uh, or the other care providers are saying? Uh, do they understand, you know, what their role is? You know, there's, there's definitely universal needs to be identified and addressed, but you also have to leave malleability and variability room to accommodate those and permission for the healthcare system, the providers in the healthcare system to accommodate those. So I'll, I'll draw an analogy, right? Nordstrom, the department store, is, is sort of roundly uh, applauded for the quality of its service. And they certainly have protocols by which their salespeople have to abide by. But they're given wide latitude to do what's right or what, what um, customers need in the moment. And it's those stories that are legend, you know, when people talk about Nordstrom. And it's not that they don't have a structure or principles or protocols that uh, they're trained to, but they're given room to accommodate the things um, that arise that no one could predict, right? The, the natural order of systems means things will always arise that you can't predict. And they're empowered to actually address them with the capabilities that they have. They're allowed to use intuition and human capability to address those. And I think in our pursuit in health systems of standardization, we've lost sight of the fact that actually the best solvers of problems are actually the humans themselves, and we started uh, to, to beat the variability or the intuition out of them to, to do those sorts of things. And I think we have to embrace that, that those care providers are capable, and given the, the freedom and the room to, to act appropriately, they will. And so that's a very long answer to your question, but I think it's one of the reorientations that we've been trying to point uh, healthcare systems to, which is embrace the fact that you've got really motivated, mission-driven, problem-solving, capable people in your midst. Stop trying to turn them into automatons and give them the room to do the things that they're actually very good at doing, um, because generally they will do the right thing. Uh, That's what uh, they joined the field to do. So we're starting to run out of time, but I I did want to ask one more question about um, this project. Um, Also in this New England Journal Catalyst article where you described all of this work, there was a quote from someone who said, you have to have a waiting room for the EHR to work. (laughs) I feel like this is like such a loaded, (laughs) such a loaded comment because HR design is like, I think an entirely other planet of design thinking that we have so much work to do on. But I wondered if you could talk a little, since, you know, EHRs are here, they're here to stay, um, you know, for all the downsides that they have. If you could talk a little bit about how you wove the EHR into the design of your clinics and um, how you try to make them um, maximize their upsides uh, rather than their downsides. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it, it was um, it was a moment of incredulity in that project, which still that still resonates <laughs> with me. You know, we were almost through all of the you know con- convinced all the stakeholders, uh, human stakeholders involved, operations, clinical staff, all the folks that we could probably pull this off. And as we were getting close to launch, we were you know uh, getting trained up on the electronic health record that we had chosen to deploy, and the the supplier had told us, oh no no. In the way we've stage-gated our software, you have to do all of this intake before you can assign a room, and you have to do that intake in a waiting room. You can't assign a room and send them to a room before you do, you know, vitals, da-da-da, and all these other sort of things. <laughs> you, know, in, you know, it was a facepalm moment. I kind of looked at them. I was like, you're telling me the software is, is defining the care model that we want to deploy. 
and they kind of, wow. you know, uh, they kind of responded with a uh, sheepish, uh, I guess so. And so you can't be too critical of the electronic health record companies, right? They, they are responding to um, uh, the demands of the system at large, right? Electronic health records, you know, up until now have mostly been glorified billing um, systems. Um, they are trying to capture and uh, um, all the, you know, codes necessary to, for, for the system to get reimbursed, and that's really what they're optimized for. Um, and they're trying to serve the middle of the bell curve, where they see the most common practice. The problem is they've built in exactly zero flexibility, I mean, this is where the conversation about flexibility comes in, to accommodate variations in practice, even minor ones, like, you know, being able to room somebody before you actually begin intake. And so faced with that challenge, we took a look and said, look, there are ways to work around this, and we did. You know, we, we, we just leave one of the stages open, move to the second stage, uh, room them first, and then go back and complete the intake. And so it actually wasn't particularly difficult. But it sort of reveals part of the dysfunction of healthcare is that we've tried so hard to standardize and make efficient what are broken processes that we've forgotten that actually there are better processes to pursue. And, and I think, you know, part of the legacy challenge for healthcare is overcoming those legacy behaviors, right? Assuming that what we've always done is the only way to do it instead of embracing the idea that actually we could do something differently and it might be better. That's great. Maybe one last question for me is slightly different tack, but what's for you the most fun part about working within a medical school, number one, and with medical professionals? And, and as we should point out to the listeners, as, as you've heard, that UT is a brand new medical school with a completely different approach and perspective than most. And how might you approach those of us, you know, giving us recommendations, those of us in sort of large, what I would describe as historied medical schools with a little bit more conservative and rooted in precedent, who might want to incorporate um, sort of design thinking into the curriculum or into our own practices? Is there Are there guidebooks or implementation guides that might be helpful for us and things that we can sort of show to uh, various institutional stakeholders to take, take part in this endeavor? Sure. Yeah, um, that's a multi-part question. I'll see if I can remember all the parts <laughs> as I answer. Um, you know, the, the joy of working in healthcare for me is the same as, uh, as the joy that every other um, person in healthcare finds in, in the field, right? We we didn't necessarily go in um, to limit our frustration or to you know get rich and famous. Um, we did it because there was a calling, right? An opportunity to improve the human condition uh, through skills that maybe we uniquely have. Um, in my case, uh, the skills uh, are, are the design skill set, and we have an opportunity and leverage, you know, in these unique circumstances and often to make change. And our goal, hopefully, is to influence uh, how others uh, do the same, right? If we can prove not just a better experience and better efficiency, but a better economic model, then we hope others will follow as well and want to achieve you know, some life aim at least. I love working with clinicians because of the reasons they, they do the hard work they do. They are literally trying to prove you know, um, uh, one of the most influential industries have impact on society. Here in Austin, we have some really unique circumstances that allow us to, to challenge norms not a blank slate, nothing in healthcare is a blank slate, but we have more permission than in traditionally we would have. And and because of the unique nature of our funding, it's very community oriented. We're not we're not beholden to the, the models of your and, and actually we're challenged to, to, to move beyond them because um, the community is not asking us to cure them once they become ill. They're asking us to get them and keep them healthy. In fact, getting them to a clinic might be considered a failure if, if in, in the long term. 
So I think those are the things that inspire us. It also gives us permission to do really interesting work. You know, working at an institution, a public institution of higher learning means um, generally um, you're granted the benefit of the doubt that you're here to actually advance the um, the priorities of, of those who support you. Um, so that's and that's the greater taxpaying populace, I guess. So so um, that alignment of, of motivations is really nice. Uh, design is has been emergent is is emergent in healthcare has been for you know uh, a little while now and you know recently we convened seven or eight academic medical centers who have embedded design in in their operations for you know some time and compared how they're being how design is being utilized and uh, what effect um, and we're realizing that healthcare systems are more and more eager to embrace it I think New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst published a survey around design, and it turns out the vast majority of healthcare system leaders are really keen to use it. They just don't know how to get started yet. So your question, I think, is apropos. There are any number of resources for understanding how uh, design is done. Just in Boston, I know there's a conference around health experience design every year. It's a great resource for people who are trying to get familiar with design specifically in a healthcare context to get educated. I, I won't make a pitch for anyone in particular, but you know, there, there's a lot of entities if you want to get introduced to design and how to utilize it inside healthcare. The challenge, though, is even once you learn design, how do you move an uh, institution off its sort of legacy precedence? And I think the biggest challenge is you know, fear of failure. And in healthcare, that's real. Like if, if you fail in a big way, you might actually hurt somebody or even worse, kill someone. And so you have to be very thoughtful about what you uh, deploy and how you experiment. And that's a dangerous word when we're talking about humans. So we'll just say, how do you how do you develop prototypes that might suggest a better way forward? And I think um, most of it is about developing institutional courage at this point, right? Um, taking a little bit of risk where the where the consequences of failure are small. If we fail on this uh, on this prototype, you know, the worst thing is we wasted a couple hours and a thousand dollars. It really doesn't uh, incur too much uh, backlash. But by doing so and learning something and improving on it, you might actually move to something that um, convinces somebody that, oh, that was something we weren't willing to try before, um, has produced some better outcomes, builds a little bit of courage, and then it's an iterative cycle that then continues to build more courage as you approach bigger and bigger issues. I'll tell you, we, you know, the waiting room example for us was a bigger push. It's not something we would have done at a legacy institution because it would have been too much. Uh, we, I'd asked the same question of at legacy institutions for the better part of eight years, and every one of them said no. Um, but because I had some authority in this system, I said, well, we're going to try it. Otherwise, we're not going to uh, make much change. But the biggest outcome of eliminating waiting rooms, you, you might think, would be a better operation model, and that certainly is um, something notable. But I'd say, even more importantly, it developed institutional courage in this organization to say, hey, look, we could take something as crazy as eliminating waiting rooms and actually achieve it and see it to fruition and make it work. What's the next big thing we might try? And so it, it makes people a little bit more comfortable with what is uncertain and unknown. Uh, and because they've been through the process once, they believe that it may just work again uh, and builds a little bit more courage to try something a little bigger for the next time around. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Stacy. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's an interesting conversation as we see sort of, I've seen a lot of systems struggle to make change and um, we're, we're at a remarkable time in healthcare where yeah. um, we're all on the cusp of change, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And then now about how we decide to embrace that change, not about whether or not uh, we have to contend with it. Right. So true. You should come to the VA or, or Kaiser. I mean, uh, we have all of the same <laughs> missions and, and we have the same, you know, 
benefits of having a long-term view with value-based purchasing. You know, uh, yeah, we need to yeah, instill some of this. Remarkable. I mean, the VA has shown a lot of courage in the things it's done. It's launched it. It's on EHR years ago and all that. Right. It, it sort of says that when you have a longer-term purview and you can recognize that return on investment, um, it actually um, uh, amplifies the sort of institutional courage within an organization. Yeah. Yeah, you design differently. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcasts along the top to subscribe and see some of our old shows. You can find links to the New England Journal Catalyst articles we talked about today and some more information about our guest, Stacey Chang. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show, share us on social media. You can find me at AudreyMDMPH and our show at ROS Podcast. Stacey, where can listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at Stacey underscore Chang. And Dave? I'm at, at David Rosenthal. Okay. Tweet us feedback and suggestions or email me at contact at rospod.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>